0: Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 28 is our text this morning. If you would turn there with me, I want to just remind you of perhaps some of you might have a hobby and it's getting less and less frequent or common. It is the hobby of reading. When you're reading, how many of you read a book that's in a series It seems like if you're reading a novel or a fictional book, you can't possibly pick one up that's not actually one of a several in a series. And you pick up that book, and as you begin to read it, particularly if it's the second or the third or the fourth or the 27th in the series, there's a review in the book that tells you what happened in the previous books. And if you're a seasoned reader, you sometimes want to just tell the author as you read the book, why don't you just get to the point? This is what Mark does. Mark is the gospel where it says repeatedly the word in Greek immediately, immediately this happens and that happens. It's full of action and the dialogue is often short and that's no different here. Mark gets to the point right here in the first chapter of his gospel as we read about what Jesus does and what Jesus teaches. For along as I read the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 14. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. They were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. As we consider this portion of God's word, let us bow briefly and ask the Lord for his blessing on us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these words... Inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by your servant, Mark, Father, we pray that they would be placed upon our hearts with hearts that believe, given to ears that hear. And Lord, help us not only to understand and hear these things, but to apply them to our lives, change us and mold us according to the power of your spirit, that by grace, we might love you even more. I pray, Father, that everything that is spoken here this morning is consistent with your word, that our thoughts and our attitudes are as well, and if not, that we shall not hear from these things again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do any of you remember the Fosbury flop? Perhaps you do. It was invented, we think, by the Olympic athlete Dick Fosbury, who made it popular in the United States and all over the world in the 1968 Olympics when he ran up to do the high jump and he didn't do what everyone else had been doing for decades before, that is to just run up and jump over the bar, he actually flopped over it with a new way to cross the bar, going almost upside down, getting his arms and legs in such a position that they would not touch the bar, and that changed the sport forever. In fact, if you don't do the Fosbury flop now, you're considered unusual, strange, or perhaps a throwback, and it's unlikely that you will reach the heights of the athletes that can do the high jump today. It was something new, something strange, something different. That's what we want in our society today, isn't it? Politicians are always coming up with new ideas Musicians crave the next new look. Those in the technology department are always telling us about the next new thing. But the amazing thing about Jesus is, he did not invent the light bulb. He did not invent sliced bread. In fact, his message was one of simplicity. He had a simple message. They expected, for those who followed him, to have a simple response. And we find out in this passage he was simply the Messiah, the Christ. This is why Mark is so loved by many, is it gets right to the point. First of all, the simple message. It's interesting, Mark doesn't give us all the details of what takes place that Matthew and Luke give. And he doesn't have all the narrative or all the different perspective that John gives. He gives right to the point. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus started preaching after John was, in a sense, finished. Now it's interesting. Last week we looked at the at the beginning or the precursor of the gospel in the first 13 verses, and we're reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ started not when Jesus came, but started way back in Old Testament times when the prophets were giving the prophecy about the Christ or the Messiah to come. And John the Baptist, as we said last week, is often described as the last Old Testament prophet. His job was to prepare the way to announce the coming of Jesus. and he did so. And it's interesting, Mark reminds us that it's not until his ministry is concluded. He's arrested by Herod, and we know the end of that story. We know that Herod will decap- and will have uh, Mark or, or have John the Baptist decapitated and he will die and be one of the first martyrs of the church. But until his arrest, Jesus did not start his ministry. Why? Well, it's because now was the time. When John's ministry was complete, it was time for him to begin his ministry. And here is the first sermon that he gives. And it says that he's proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, is it possible that Jesus used other words as well? Yes. I don't think he just stood up for a few seconds and gave a sermon. I think there were other words that were used as well. But Mark gives us the shorthand version here. And notice the description. It's the gospel of God. That phrase is not used very much in the scriptures. It's used in Romans chapter 1 when Uh, Paul is opening that letter to the Romans. It's used here in this place. But it's a simplistic understanding that God has good news to give his people. And this good news is, first of all, in this, the time is accomplished or fulfilled. What does it mean here? Well, Mark is reminding his readers this didn't just happen out of the blue. This is something that God had designed to happen from the time he created the earth and the fall took place and the promises began in scripture to his people. The time had now come. This was not a surprise by God that his people had rebelled against him. It was not a surprise that the world was falling apart in rebellion, it was not a surprise that all of creation was groaning, longing until the time when the sons of God shall be revealed. It just now was the appropriate time in the Roman Empire when people could go from one end to the other fairly freely, when there was freedom to proclaim the gospel in these places, when it was before the printing press and before social media and all those things so that we don't get caught up in the pictures and videos of Jesus. Here it was right in the time when God had designed for it to to take place. The time was accomplished. And then the second thing is, the kingdom of God has approached or drawn near. The kingdom of God has drawn near or is at hand, according to our ESV translation. Now what does he mean by saying that? A lot of people look up the idea, what does it mean that he's saying the kingdom is at hand? Does that mean he's saying that it will come quickly in my lifetime? Does it mean it'll come when I come back? What does it mean? Now, of course, we understand one of the ways it means that is now the king is here. Now the Messiah has come. Now, as chapter 1, verse 1 said, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, is here. But there's significance here. First of all, the significance of this in the past is this. God has been proclaiming that this kingdom would come for centuries. He has been sending his prophets to tell the people to repent because this time was coming. He has been promising them that their sins would be forgiven, not because of all the animals sacrificed in the cultic system of the Israelites, but in the time when it shall be done once and for all and shall no more See death again in the end. But it's also significant here in the present of Jesus' time. It was significant because here was Jesus to fulfill this. Here was God in the flesh. Here was God incarnate come in the flesh to dwell among the people. And the significant part of his life was lived to fulfill righteousness. To completely obey the word of God so that he would be the one person in all of the earth who was righteous in God's eyes and deserved to go to heaven. The only one. But it's also significant for them at this time for the future. When he says the kingdom of God is near or is at hand, it's reminding them that not all things have been fulfilled yet. He had not yet gone through his suffering. And the passion on the cross, he had not yet been raised from the dead with the power of the resurrection that would change the world forever. And yet the kingdom he was announcing was at hand. It was near. In him, the king, the savior, the lamb of God. And what does this king proclaim about his kingdom? Two things. The first one is the call to repent. This is a basic thing. This is nothing new. This is not sliced bread or the light bulb. This is the same thing God has been telling everybody since the Garden of Eden. It has been, you are sinners, you have displeased a holy God, and because of that, you need to repent. Now, the world around us doesn't like those terms, does it? It doesn't like us to use the word sin. In fact, I would say, a vast number of people, if they were to come into our church and hear how many times we use that three-letter word, sin, they would say, Pastor, and I've heard this before, you talk about sin too much. What does it mean to repent? Well, the Greek word means, literally, to change your mind. Yet we understand that what it means is to stop your sin, to change your attitude, to go in humility before God and ask him for forgiveness, and by faith receiving that forgiveness, then turning from your sin to follow Jesus. That is what repent means. John the Baptist was doing the same thing. You'll notice here in verse 4 that says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the last Old Testament prophet—what was his job? To prepare the way by telling the people, in part, to repent. What was it that Isaiah and Jeremiah did in the Old Testament, and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi? What were they all doing? They were saying, "Repent." repent, repent, repent. It gets to be old. It's that review of the series of books we talked about in the introduction. Sometimes you want to say get to the point, but the problem is that is the point. If we don't repent, there are dire dire consequences. The call here is simple. Repent. But there's a second part of this. It's not just repent. It's not just stop sinning and do what's right. It's also to trust the gospel Trust in the gospel. <clears throat> I like to use the word trust because sometimes we use the word believe in all kinds of different ways. It's only gotten worse. Twenty-three years ago, twenty-four years ago when I started my ministry, I already was trying to tell people I don't like the translation of the word believe because we say we believe it's going to rain, whether it's going to rain or not. We say we believe all kinds of things, and some of the things we believe are flat-out false. And yet, when we trust something, it's a little different. When we trust something, that means we not only believe something to be true, but we're willing to put a stake in it. In other words, it's a common perception, you've all heard it, perhaps the illustration I've used it before. If you believe that a chair is going to hold you up and you never sit in that chair, you don't trust it. But if you believe that chair is going to hold you up and you sit down in that chair, you trust that it's going to hold your weight. That's what it is to trust in the gospel. And the trust here is not in myself, is not in my faith, is not in anything else. But here, trust in the gospel. What is the gospel here? Jesus calls it the gospel of God. It's the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news that God has a plan for his people to save them from their sins. And that plan is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says to trust in the gospel, in one sense he's saying, trust in me. John will tell us he had many sermons where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. All those terms. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we now have a way to salvation. Now there are a lot of preachers out there who might preach another gospel. They might be on the search for relevant messages. I hear that all the time. In fact, we hear advertisements on the radio or on signs or in other places on the internet. They're always saying, I want to know that our church, unlike all the other churches, is relevant. They may preach messages of hope or prosperity or academics of different sort, but that's not the gospel. The simple message of the gospel is first one of humility. We're sinners. We don't deserve for God to even look at us. In fact, apart from God's grace, we cannot even come into his presence. We are sinners who have rebelled against a holy God. That's the first part of the message. The second part of the message is one of mercy. Good news. Gospel. Those two things go together. The good news you don't understand if you don't understand the bad news. The bad news is if you don't repent from your sins, there's no hope for you. You are going to suffer an eternal punishment. In fact, one sin in your life, and I bet you can think of more than one, one sin in your life, no matter how small, disqualifies you from being one who fulfills the word of God and thus is righteous before a holy God. But by God's grace, if you trust in Jesus Christ, the one person who was righteous, the one person who did earn his way to heaven, the one person who perfectly fulfilled all the will of God, not only the scriptures, but the perfect plan of salvation in all its details. If you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. The good news is that you will now live with him and the Father forever. That is the gospel. Beware of any preacher, myself included, who preaches a different message than the gospel of God. That's the simple message of the gospel. But there's also a simple response, isn't there? It's simple in one way, but it's so difficult in another. The next little section tells us about Jesus calling his first disciples. So here's his first sermon, rather short. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the gospel. Now he's going to call his first disciples, and he's talking particularly here, Mark is, about the twelve. He's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen.
1: So here's Simon and Andrew, here's Jesus calling them, he says to them, follow me and I will make you become
0: fishers of men. I don't know about you, but I might want to contract here and find out what the terms are, I might want to know my housing arrangements. Uh, I might want to know uh, some of the things that are going on in, in the uh, idea of what it means to be a disciple. What is it? What are the things we're going to learn? I kind of want to know ahead of time the, uh, the agenda for the meetings of discipleship and this committee uh, that Jesus is starting, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and yet Jesus, according to Mark here, now we know there's, there's more to it than this. But he says, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, the background here is important. This wasn't just grabbing somebody who had no understanding of the situation. Andrew, at least, John tells us, in his gospel, was a follower of John the Baptist. He was one of his disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. This was the the arrangement in that day. When you followed a teacher, you would become his disciple, and you would sit at his feet while he taught you, or you would follow him, and together you would learn uh, what this particular individual was teaching, a rabbi or other things. So this was Andrew. He was one of John the Baptist's disciples, John tells us in his gospel. And when he found Jesus, and Jesus was uh, confronting him, then Andrew goes, and he finds his brother Simon to tell him that he's found the right person. So that's the background. But the call is simple. Come after me. Or as our modern translations say, follow me. And the response is rather fascinating, isn't it? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now Simon and Peter evidently were commercial fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. You know, Galilee was that place that was prophesied in Isaiah 9 to be the place where things like this would start in the kingdom of God. That now the good news would be proclaimed first in Zebulun and Naphtali, who had been forgotten or neglected uh, by the people in that time when Isaiah wrote his, his, uh, his gospel, his prophecy, And and here, now in this area, the Sea of Galilee and the Galilee of the Nations, as Isaiah puts it, here is Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and he says to people living in that area, living their everyday lives as commercial fishermen, come after me. Now what would be the response of these fishermen that you would expect? It might not be this. They immediately left their nets and followed him. In fact, the word left is the word yielded. They, they gave up their nets. In other words, they understood at this moment, this was a life-changing event, at least at this particular moment, for their immediate future. They left everything. That's Simon and Andrew. But then you run across two other brothers. James and John, the son of Zebedee. And we know that from other parts of Scripture, these were not uh, uh, relaxed men just uh, looking to, to have a day on the boat, and fishing and so forth. These, these were guys of action. They were called sons of thunder. In fact, they would later on in the ministry of Christ, as they're going through Samaria, and they would call to Jesus and say, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans? Jesus said, well, no thanks. But here, the response again. What is the response? First of all, who are these people? They're not only commercial fishermen. They're a middle class family. Notice this is a family business. There's Zebedee, there's James and John, and they have hirelings or hired servants that are fishing as well. So here it is. This is a a middle class, perhaps a small business of fishermen. It is their profession. It is their family business. It is, to them, probably their whole life is tied up in fishing. And what is their response? They not only leave their nets, they left their father in the boat. And the hired servants. And they followed him. They left everything that was normal to them to follow Jesus this response you had when Jesus called you to repent and to follow him? Occasionally someone has a radical response to the gospel. You've heard of people who have had to leave a career. Perhaps their career was a particular offense to God. And there are some, not many, but there are some, some people who just left their job on the spot and never reached Perhaps there are those you know who left their family, and their family completely rejected them. Like James and John here, although Zebedee didn't apparently reject them. But in, that, in some circumstances, there are those whose family completely said, you're dead to me, don't ever come back to my house. That's happened. Or perhaps there are those who left all their friends, never to return to But this begs the question, doesn't it? Have you really yielded your life to Jesus? Did you give up the things associated with your sinful past? It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be called to leave their job. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be called to leave their family. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be called to leave leave everything that they know. But are you willing to leave the life associated with the sin you lived in in the past? Are you willing to give those things up even if it's costly? Even if it costs money or prestige or power or influence? Are you willing to give those things up merely to follow Jesus? That's the calling. The calling is not just, okay, I need... 12 disciples, 12 men to come and minister to my needs and serve me and, and confirm me as who I am and all this other stuff. No, they were called to leave their lives to serve him. This looks different for different people. Not all of us are going to be preachers or, or Sunday school teachers. Not all of us are going to use all the same gifts in church. In it, but all of us are called to live, leave our life of sin and to follow Jesus because he is simply the Messiah. This next section is one of the many miraculous sections of the New Testament. Mark begins with this one. They go to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, it's important to know Andrew's message to Simon in John 1. He said, I need you to come with me because I found the Christ found the Messiah. That was Andrew's message. Right from the beginning, he knew that Jesus was different. He knew that Jesus was Messiah. Had he been told this? Did he believe this on his own? I believe the Holy Spirit convinced him of this thing at this moment. But here in this message, as being the Messiah and the Son of God, when he began teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, how did people react? Well, they understood that he was a master of the word because they were astounded at his teaching. What was so different about his teaching? Was it because he had something new? Was it because there was something uh, amazing about the quality or the illustrations he had or those other things? Now, Now, evidently, he was a gifted speaker. We still have many of his illustrations and sermons and points throughout the Gospels. But they were astounded at his teaching because of this, because it was not like the scribes. Instead, it had authority. Now, what did they mean by that? What's interesting, the practice at the time, we think, was that a rabbi would get up, and rather than just teach from God's word, they would quote all the other rabbis that they served under, or the rabbis of notoriety in the recent who were studying the scriptures. So they said nothing of their own authority, but quoted everybody else and used their authority. In fact, one of the commentaries I read said that basically these scribes were those who would pettifog. In other words, they didn't really say anything. Uh, They they would just get up and and try to, to teach the scriptures what everybody thinks about them. But there was no authority behind them. And yet, what is the word of God? It is our authority for life and practice. And so Jesus merely taught as one giving authority, not the authority of the rabbis of the day, not quoting all the commentaries of the day, not
1: giving an academic
0: speech of some sort. He's actually giving them the gospel with the authority of telling them to repent and believe, with the authority imbued in him as a son of God. And they're astounded that he can teach like this. After all, to their knowledge, he had not trained at the feet of the, notori- uh, the, the rabbis of notoriety. Uh, he hadn't gone through the schools of the rabbinical training. He hadn't gone through all those formal methods and all this. He was he a was carpenter's son from Nazareth. And notice here, what it says in verse 27. It says, This is a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Even though it was an old message, the way he gave this message was new to them. They'd never seen anything like it. Because he was not just master of the word, he was also master of the world. You know, when we look at teaching, I have to say, increasingly, through the last few decades. When I first began in ministry, I really didn't hear much about plagiarism. But now you hear it all the time.
1: And it's not just students using artificial intelligence websites, which is increasingly a problem.
0: And I'm told that some students go through their whole career in college now having never written an original paper.
1: In fact, you can give to the artificial intelligence website a sample of your writing, and that particular website may give you a paper with some of your mistakes and some of your idiosyncrasies in your paper so that you can hand it off as your own to the professor and he won't be able to tell. It's plagiarized.
0: But the problem is this is not just these students. It's also preachers. Preachers are taking somebody else's sermon and preaching it as their own. They're they're taking sometimes even the ways in which a preacher preaches. All of his hand motions and all that kind of stuff. And and they may look exactly like someone else and there are people who have come into the pews of a church and recognized that that sermon that was preached was preached somewhere else by somebody else. And why do they do that? Well, one reason they do that is because perhaps they can't think they can live up to those who have preached before them. And it's an idea of authority or power or other things. But really it's because, in essence, we believe that preaching is not necessarily the thing that changes people. It is not the Holy Spirit-inspired number one method for bringing people to Jesus Christ in the minds of those who plagiarize. In their minds, it is something that they have to do to gain glory or notoriety for themselves in their own charisma, in their own academic training, in their own ideas. And the temptation is great because we want people to like us and to tell us we have good sermons. But Jesus taught, not as someone who was the authority rabbinic authority, not as someone who's written all the commentaries, not as someone who is known as the great preacher in the United States of America. He taught as God's messenger to tell the gospel. God with authority. The authority of the Holy Spirit and the Word. And this master of the world was recognized even by unclean spirits. Here he comes into the synagogue and this man cries out, who has an unclean or evil spirit and says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, he was even recognized by these unclean spirits that he had the power to destroy. And how did he have the power to destroy? Because his identity was the Holy One, the Holy of God. Because of his holiness, because of who he was, son of god even these unclean spirits recognized who he was and his authority was unlike all the authority of those who'd gone before him because he was the savior he was the messiah he was the son of god he was god in the flesh and this is realized not just by these demons but when you read through the rest of the story you notice that they recognize this by observation these observers recognize this
1: Jesus rebuked this guy saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out a loud voice came out of him and they
0: were all amazed. They questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. These observers recognized in his rebuke when he said, be muzzled and depart, evil spirit. They recognized this was something different.
1: By amazement they said even the spirits obey.
0: It's anything like this. It would take prayer it would take effort by those who would cast out demons. We know this from other places in scripture. They would often go in groups together and they might say things, pray things, do things to try and get these spirits out of them. Sometimes they were unsuccessful and by a mere word Jesus could say depart from him and he was gone. Why? Because he's the holy one of God. He's righteous. He's perfect. He has the power of God in him, not just because he's the Son of God, divine, God in the flesh, but also because he never sinned. He was righteous. In that sense, he was unique. It tells us in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. He is worthy or righteous. He is set apart to be holy and to be set apart for the purpose of God. Here's the message. It's a simple message. Repent and trust the gospel. He calls for a simple response. Drop everything. This is the most important thing in your life. If you miss this moment of repentance, you're missing the whole point of the gospel. You're missing the whole point of your eternal destination. The whole point of this is to stop your sin, tell God, confess that you're a sinner, trust in him, and follow him. And it's because he alone, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Andrew was right. He found the Messiah. He's the only one. I have to say, I think some of you here today may ponder Christianity. You may associate with Christians. You may have all kinds of knowledge about Jesus Christ, and you still may not be a believer you see Christ's message is simple, personal and radical it's simple repent and trust in the gospel it's personal you must do this your parents can't do this for you Your children cannot do this for you. The pastor cannot do this for you. No priest is going to do this for you. You have to confess that you're a sinner, and you have to come before God and tell him, I have no way to save myself. It's only by Christ I trust in him alone. You have to do this, but it's also radical.
1: You understand from this brief message of the calling from the scriptures, even from John the Baptist's ministry, where we said we saw where they would come up and they say, "What are we supposed to do now?" And he would say, "Well, don't
0: cheat others, don't extort others, whatever their situation was." You see, your life should look different when you respond to the call of the Holy God. If your life does not look any different, what is it you're really trusting in? If your life does not look any different, have you truly turned from your sins? If your life does not look any different, have you really left the things of the world and given your life to Christ that you might follow Him? This is the gospel of God. Simple. Repent, believe, and follow Him. It may be simple, but it's the most difficult thing you're ever going to do in your life because it's the most radical thing you're ever going to do in your life. And it's life changing. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We pray for the power by your spirit to repent and believe. We pray for the power of your spirit that will change us and mold us and sanctify us. Lord, we pray for the power of your spirit working through your word, the instrument you have chosen.
1: This crazy sense of preaching your word that others might hear, that your spirit
0: might take that word and change their hearts, and spur them on to a new life in Christ. What wonder, what amazement, what foolishness to the world, but what power, what glory, what awe, what marvel that Jesus is our Messiah. We pray these things.